0: It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. Uh, those of you who have been here for a while may have, may still be in fellowship. Those of you who just got in from dealing with the traffic out on 164 might need to, a little extra time. But uh, nevertheless, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to study God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to study your word, that you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, who makes these things clear to us and understandable, that we might be able to apply them in our lives. Father, we thank you for our so great salvation. Now, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John about the trials and the crucifixion of our Lord, we pray that we might be impressed with the... Uh, dimensions with the depth, with the scope of our salvation and all that has been accomplished for us and that we might be challenged by it to continue to live and pursue spiritual maturity because of all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> One announcement that Jim forgot, that is that uh, I forgot at first hour. I'm glad most of you came back. Uh, this next week, for those of you who have been around a while, you know, is the Labor Day Bible Conference that North Stonian Bible Church has. And the speaker is Charlie Clough. Now, most of you are familiar with Charlie Clough. Those of you who don't, who are not familiar with Charlie, I've known Charlie since I first got to know Charlie. I was probably in high school. And he came down to do summer internships at my church in, uh, church where I grew up in Houston. And uh, I was impressed with him then, and he really helped me understand a number of things over the years. Charlie thinks about five stages deeper than anybody you or I have ever been exposed to. He was valedictorian of his class from MIT, and then he uh, went to Dallas Seminary, majored in Hebrew there, and pastored for a number of years. And now he is the, uh, he left the pastorate, and now he is, uh, I think, chief meteorologist down at Aberdeen Proving Ground. But he is, his area of expertise is apologetics, and his specialty is in the area of creation versus evolution. And he is going to be speaking on Romans 1, 18 and following uh, at the conference next week, which should be good and it's interesting. I think two years ago we had Charlie up for something. I was t- studying, in, I was in John 3 at the time on regeneration. What I taught the Sunday before he came just kind of, Dovetailed right into what he was going to, what he covered during that next conference, and the same thing is happening this morning. so uh, you will want to be at that conference. I think it starts at seven thirty Friday night. I've got the schedule somewhere uh, it starts Saturday morning, not Friday night Saturday morning. okay, ten well, call over there, find out. I'll have it precisely for you Wednesday night. But you do not want to miss that. Charlie is just, in my opinion, one of the uh, best thinkers and most profound thinkers in Christianity. And he has developed a lot of different things. I wish I could expose most of you to uh, some of it, but eventually we will. He's written a series that he originally did at his ch- put together at his church down in Lubbock. 20 years ago called Framework for Christian Life, I think, which is a Sunday school curriculum. And I have all the notes on that. And uh, he's been reteaching it the last six or seven years at the church he attends down in Maryland. And I'm hoping someday to try to integrate that into what we're doing in Sunday school because it is uh, truly an impressive uh, amount of work that he has done on that But um, there's so much to do in so little time, who knows? Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 18, and we will continue our study on the six trials of Jesus before His crucifixion. John, And we stopped last time somewhere towards the end of John 18, around verse 33. So we will pick up there finish the chapter this time i know that everyone here was here the last when i was here a month ago before i left on my trip is fully aware exactly where we left off the last time that has been on your minds ever since you can't wait for the rest of it so there's no need for review right I'm being facetious. After being unplugged for a month, I came back and I was scratching my head saying, What am I teaching? I couldn't remember whether I was in John or Zephaniah or hesitations. (laughs) Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. John 18.33 Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you... Uh, This about me, Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, chief priest, delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, for you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, there's a lot of interesting things that are going on in this interchange between Pilate and Jesus. But first, I think we need a little review to remind ourselves of what's going on. Chapter 18 begins what is called the passion narrative. Now, I don't like that term, passion, because today it has all kinds of other connotations but it comes from the Latin word which has to do with suffering. And this is its the traditional term used to describe the uh, events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ was the eternal second person of the Trinity, the God-man who became flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So this is not some accident in God's plan. This is not something that is unfortunate, something that uh, snuck up on Jesus at the last minute, but something that he was fully prepared for. In fact, this was the reason he became a man in order to fulfill God's plan of salvation. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw his arrest always, I think, I still chuckle over this when the Roman core horde, about 600 to 800 soldiers came out along with the uh, temple guards and Pharisees and seeking Jesus and when he said that he was there and uttered his name, I am, they all fell down and they all got up, you know, stumbling around with their torches and shields and swords and stumbling over themselves and trying to act as if nothing happened. And collecting themselves and then saying, well, where is this Jesus? You can just imagine how this must have seemed. And and it's a tremendous picture of how man in his rebellion against God is in self-deception and refuses to accept the reality of his own condition. And in that self-deception, despite all the evidence to the contrary he continues to assert his ability to control his life and to find meaning apart from God. And we see a similar example of this level of self-deception in Pilate in this interchange with Jesus in this trial. Excuse me. Now, there was not just one trial of our Lord, but there were actually six trials. When Jesus was first arrested, he was taken to Annas, the former high priest. Now, the trials of Jesus, the six trials, can be divided into two basic groups of three each. The first three form the religious trials, and the second three, the civil trials. The first trial was before Annas, which was more along the line of a, of a hearing, or when Jesus was brought before Annas to see if he could, would incriminate himself, And then he was sent from Annas to the active high priest, his son-in-law Caiaphas. And then from there, they convened the Sanhedrin just after dawn in order to somehow legitimize what they have already done. The civil trials, or, or excuse me, the criminal trials were three. There was a trial before Pilate. John 18, 28 to 30. And then there is a trial before Herod in Luke 23, 6 through 12. And then there is the return to Pilate in John 18, uh, 31, down to, down through uh, chapter 19. So these are the six trials. And what we are looking at here is what is taking place during this final trial before Pilate. The first six Jewish trials were illegal. The first two trials were held at night in contrast to rabbinical law and the Mishnah. According to the uh, rabbinic code, any trial had to be held during the daytime, but these were held at night, which shows that they were they were uh, hastily summoned and they were not concerned the the irony is that while they are focusing on using their legalism to uh, incriminate Jesus they were in fact uh, outside the bounds of their own law and that's typical of arrogance arrogance is always seeking to uh, incriminate others and is blind to its own faults so they are uh, seeking to uh, accuse him and make him guilty. So they hold these first trials. A uh, second way in which they were illegal: the, uh, the uh, accused was presumed guilty, which in co- is contrary to Mishnaic law. They also sought to have him incriminate himself, which is in contra- uh, which violates their law. And then the verdict of in a capital trial, the verdict cannot be given. If it's a guilty verdict, it cannot be given the same day as the trial, and they did that. So they uh, they were violating the law in many different ways. Some have said that there were at least eight or nine violations of their own law. And finally, they could not get even two witnesses to agree. But finally, they trumped up the charges so that they would. That's when they forced or tried to get Jesus to incriminate himself in order to bring charges against him. Their whole agenda was based on legalistic and religious emotion. Now, I always make a distinction between religion and Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. Religion is the idea that man is trying to have a relationship with God based on his own efforts, based trying to man trying to impress God with his own goodness, with his own ritual, with his own activity, rather than accepting what God has done completely and exclusively for man at the cross. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, because Christ did all of the work, we then can have a relationship with God. It is not based on who we are or on what we have done, but it is based exclusively on who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. So they're operating on legalism, they're operating on religious emotion, and whenever you have that objectivity goes right out the window and they have no objectivity they are motivated by fear they're afraid of Rome they're afraid of Roman authority they're afraid of Jesus popularity with the masses that somehow they will lose power they'll lose prestige somehow that if Jesus is too popular that the Romans will in turn get angry with them and and, uh, send in troops so they're operating on fear And their fear is, and the ironic thing is, that because they operated on fear and crucified Christ, all of what they feared came to pass. And they were eventually destroyed uh, by Rome, and they lost their power and lost their influence over the people. The principle is that when emotion takes over, objectivity is lost. And when objectivity is lost, there can be no justice, there can be no liberty, liberty, and there can be no freedom. The Jews were unable to carry out their desires to crucify Jesus because as a, as a uh, nation under Rome, they no longer had the freedom to carry out capital punishment. This was standard operating procedure for the Roman Empire. Whenever they would uh, conquer a country... There would always be a number of factions going on in that country that were trying to gain approval with Rome, and there would be one group vying with another group. Somebody would bring charges against another person for one thing or another, and so the the, uh, the Romans kept capital punishment as their prerogative so that they could avoid these kinds of situations, and they would never... Uh, they always operated on a pretty good standard of justice to prevent this kind of power play from taking place. And in this situation, the Jews had to come to the uh, governor of Judea to get his permission to uh, execute Jesus. That meant that they had to come up with some sort of a charge that would carry some weight in terms of Roman law. So they accused Jesus of... Um, political insurrection against Caesar. That was the charge. Now, the governor at the time is Pontius Pilate, so we need to review a few things about who Pilate was and his basic problems. First of all, we realize Pilate, we don't know much about his background. There are various uh, speculations about the fact that he was... Uh, possibly a, uh, had been a military hero, and that was the origin of his title Pontius, coming from the uh, region in northern uh, Turkey called Pontus. And this was typical of uh, Roman activity, that if someone was, was uh, played a role in a military operation and was successful, that they would be given uh, a title like Germanicus or Britannicus or something like that that reflected the geographical region where they had victory there are others who who have alternate views we're not sure it's a matter of scholarly debate but what we do know is he was a man of means he had uh, he was a member of the uh, equites which was a not the aristocracy of rome but was a middle class that was rising up in what because of his uh, power i mean because of his ability He was recognized and given these responsibilities and he was appointed governor of Judea in 26 AD by the emperor Tiberius. And that indicated that Tiberius uh, had his respect or that he had the respect of Tiberius and that Tiberius was possibly a family friend and thus was granting favors to him. Now that's going to be important in terms of what happens eventually in terms of Pilate's uh, eventual death when Pilate uh, became governor in 26 AD this is about three years or four years before Jesus began his ministry one of the, his first acts was to an, antagonize the Jews over those four years he did four things which antagonized the Jews and created an atmosphere of hostility between himself and the Jewish leaders first of all He changed army headquarters for the uh, Roman military from Caesarea to Jerusalem. By changing the army headquarters, they would move the standards for the Roman army from Caesarea to the Mark Anthony barracks to the fortress Antonio in Jerusalem. And it had the uh, Roman eagle on it. And that was that if you were in Jerusalem, to understand this, you have to understand the geography of Jerusalem. The city looked, we'll just draw a rectangle here, and in this upper right corner is the Temple Mount. And in the upper left corner of the Temple Mount was where Herod had built the Fortress Antonio. So it was on temple grounds and overlooked the temple, and it was on a high spot over the city, so that the sentries at the Antonio Fortress could overlook the city and be aware of any kind of crowd or mob that was forming or any kind of insurrection that might take place. (coughs) When Pilate moved the headquarters of of the army there, they brought in their standards. And the Jews looked upon those standards and the eagle on the standard as a form of idolatry. And since that was on temple ground, that was viewed as blasphemy, and so that upset the uh, religious leaders the next thing he did was that he hung shields all around the walls of the fortress with uh, and on those shields were the names of the Roman de- Roman gods and that also offended the Jews and was viewed as blasphemy to have all the Roman Roman deities names on on the temple mount then the year Before these events that we're studying right now, about two years before, Pilate raided the temple treasury and took the redemption money out of the temple treasury and used it to repair the aqueduct, bringing water into Jerusalem so that there would be clean water and they would have access to some indoor plumbing in Jerusalem. And he cleaned up the sewage system. But even though that made things a lot more livable in Jerusalem, once again, it angered the religious leaders because he had violated the temple treasury. And then, just about six months before the, the trial of Christ, there were some Galilean rebels who were sacrificing in the temple, and he sent the Roman army into the temple and had them executed on temple grounds. So, at that, they, with that event, that had just about was all that the Jewish leaders could take, and they had appealed to Tiberius to remove uh, Pilate from office, and so Pilate's job is threatened. So he is caught now between a rock and a hard place. He has already offended the Jews enough to where he might lose his job, and now he is in a situation where there is enough pressure upon him where he is willing to compromise. Even though he has a conviction that Jesus is innocent and not worthy of death and should not be executed, he knows that if he doesn't cater to the religious leaders that they will again complain and he will probably be removed in disgrace and he wants to avoid that. So he is uh, caught between the horns of a dilemma. He tries therefore to compromise between the Jewish hatred and antagonism of Jesus and Roman law, the objectivity of Roman law and so he offers them a choice they can either crucify Jesus or they can uh free Barabbas now Barabbas was a known criminal he was uh, a robber he was a murderer he was probably involved in all sorts of uh criminal activities and insurrection and he was uh hated by many Jews i mean this this man was responsible for many crimes and so he picked Barabbas because he figured well who could be worse than Barabbas and yet the crowd turned turned the tables on him, and they chose Barabbas. And that tells us, that reminds us, that you can never compromise with hatred or with any form of mental attitude, sin. Guilt reaction, shame, anger, whatever it might be, if you cater to it in your own life or in your own soul or in someone else, then you will eventually lose. Compromise is never the path to success when absolutes are involved. This compromise is one of mere political expediency and shows us once again that political expediency always destroys leadership. True leadership means that you take a stand for absolutes, no matter what the consequences might be, and you take your stand. And instead of taking a stand for the objectivity of Roman law, Pilate wavered because he had no a basis for absolutes in his own soul, and we will see why as we go through this study. His attempted compromise did not save him from disaster. In fact, it just precipitated that disaster. As a result of his compromise, he had tremendous popularity with the Jews and with Herod. They, they loved him. He apparently solved the problem, and this shows us once again that popularity has nothing to do with good leadership. Just because somebody is popular doesn't mean they're, they're a good leader. Some years later, about 35 B.C., three, uh, two years after the events that we're studying, Pilate put down a revolt in Samaria, and that incurred the anger of his superior Vitellus, who was the Syrian governor. Now, the province of Syria was an was a imperial province, whereas Judea was not, And that meant that Pilate was under the authority of Vitellus. So, Vitellus brought uh, uh, Pilate up on charges of incompetence, and he had to go to Rome to defend himself. Well, at this particular time, Tiberius is dying, and by the time uh, Pilate got to Rome, Tiberius, who was his benefactor, uh, died, and Caligula became emperor. Caligula hated Pilate, so by the time Pilate got to Rome, he knew that his days were numbered and that Caligula would, would find him guilty so in, or, he, in order to avoid the disgrace of a trial he uh, killed himself now the interesting thing about all of this is that in his lifetime Pilate regarded the innocence of Jesus something that was not significant but in his death it was that insignificance of Jesus that became the basis for his eternal punishment Pilate condemned an innocent man to death on the cross but because of that death on the cross Pilate himself became condemned that's the basis for John 3.18 he who believes on him is not condemned but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God so we read in John 18.33 Pilate who is now, you can see that he is caught with the Jews, because instead of staying in the praetorium at the judgment seat, he is catering to their wishes and going out to the crowd. See, they won't come in because they're afraid that they would they would uh, be defiled, and the Passover starts at sundown of this particular day. And so they refuse to come in because... For some reason, being in the presence of the Gentile, there may have been something there that would defile them. They would not come in. So Pilate, rather than standing on law and saying, well, if this is really an issue, let's wait till after the Passover and then you can come back, he uh, catered to their wishes and he gets up and he goes out and listens to the crowd. And then he returns. You see him coming back into the Praetorium and he's going back and forth like a puppet uh, at the whim of the crowd. And first he interviews the crowd, then he comes back and he talks to Jesus, then he goes back to the crowd. So you see, he's lost control of the situation. Pilate, therefore, entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about this about me? Here, Jesus is focusing on Pilate's internal dynamics. While Jesus, as God, undiminished deity in his omniscience, knows the answer, he is going to make it clear. You see, God always makes it clear the reason for a person's loss of salvation. It is not whimsical. He is going to make it clear that Pilate has had every opportunity to respond positively to the gospel but that his condemnation is based on his own negative volition. So he asked him, are you saying this on your own initiative? In other words, have you figured this out after all this interview, that there's some spiritual dynamics going on here that are greater than all these trumped-up charges by the Jews? Or are you simply carrying out your function as a magistrate, uh, carrying out your administrative role, and you're not interested in finding out the significance of king of the Jews at all? So Jesus focuses the issue by saying, are you saying this on your own initiative? In other words, are you really personally interested in the answer to that question? Or are you simply carrying out your, your duties as a magistrate? Pilate's answer reveals his own negative volition to the gospel. He says in verse 35, I am not a Jew. Am I your own nation? And the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Now, by his answer, when he says, I am not a Jew, am I? He's basically saying, I really don't care. It's none of of my business. I'm not at all interested in all this theological squabbling that's going on. As As he interviews Christ, what we see is that Pilate clearly understands that Jesus is claiming that his kingdom is not of this world, that it is merely a spiritual kingdom. He understands the spiritual nature of the kingdom, but he doesn't understand its implications. He is just simply expressing uh, or carrying out his basic function as an administrator. He is not at all concerned about spiritual things. Now, you and I probably have all run into people like this. Uh, It's amazing sometimes when I'm with some folks and they find out that I'm a pastor and they start asking questions well, what kind of church? What do, you, what do you believe? What do you teach? And you see, at least there's some level of curiosity. always amazes me when I'm with some people and they never ask a question. There is just no level of curiosity. There's no positive volition. They, they could care less about anything spiritual. All they want to do is talk about economics or politics or whatever it might be, whatever their interest is, but they, there is no interest whatsoever and asking about uh, the Bible or church, and it's just so obvious. And you've all run into people like that. They just have no interest at all in spiritual things. And Pilate is this way. He understands the nature of what Jesus is saying, that his kingdom is not of this world, but he doesn't understand its implications, and he doesn't want to understand its implications. He is an unbeliever. And as an unbeliever, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, he is unable to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that a natural man, that's a bad translation, it's the Greek word sukikas, which means a soulish man, that is someone who is not regenerate, who does not have a human spirit, has not been born again. A natural man, a soulish man, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And because he does not have a human spirit, he cannot understand these things, and he has no interest. If he had possessed positive volition, then he would ask questions related to that. He would show some interest. He would say, well, what do you mean by a spiritual kingdom? Where is it located? What's your role? What's it all about? Come on, explain this. But he has no interest whatsoever, and he doesn't ask a question. Anyone who is really positive would begin to ask questions to try to understand some things for, and, and seek some information uh, about God on their own. But once he understands what Jesus is saying, he he could care less, and he has basically two options. The first option is to use the objectivity of Roman law to get Jesus off and have him declared innocent and not executed. Or two, he could could be... Curious enough to determine why the Jews are really so interested in killing Jesus. Obviously, he's innocent. He understands that. Well, why in the world, then, are they so angry and so filled with hate about Jesus? But he has no interest whatsoever. Now, if he had pursued that, that's always a little conjectural. If he had pursued that, if Pilate had had some level of positive volition it's possible he could have been saved. See, even Pontius Pilate could have been saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross for everyone. And Pontius Pilate, at some point in his childhood, would have reached the age of God consciousness. And when he reached the age of God consciousness, he obviously went negative. He had no interest in learning anything about God. And as a result of that, Scar tissue built up on his soul, the Bible calls it hardness of heart, so that when he finally was confronted with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, he had no interest whatsoever. Now I want you to notice this. Many times you and I get in situations where we are, uh, communicating the Gospel to somebody. And it just seems like they're so hard-headed. They're not interested. They throw up all kinds of questions as obstacles to our witnessing to them. And they come up with questions about, well, what about people who never heard? And what about all the suffering and evil in the world? If God is really a good God, how could there be all this evil in the world? And they come up with uh, issues on uh, evolution or whatever it might be. And we think, gosh, if I just had the right answers, if I just knew the right thing to say then I could convince them. And see, as soon as you start thinking that way, you have made a tactical error. Because the problem is not somebody's intelligence. It's not that you don't have the right answers. The problem is that they are negative to God consciousness or negative at gospel hearing, and they don't want to know the truth. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, which is what Romans 1.18 says is uh, the normal operation of a person who is negative at God consciousness. It's not that they don't know the truth. It's that according to Romans 1, they know the truth, but they are suppressing it. They are refusing to accept it as the truth. And this is exactly what we see with Pilate. He is confronted with Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, he rejects the whole idea that there is truth. He is completely negative to Christ and to uh, God consciousness, and he does not want to know the truth at all. Now, this raises the whole question about what about heathenism? What about the person who supposedly never heard? And we will get to that in a little bit. See, Pilate is a typical example of the heathen. Now, what do I mean by heathen? The heathen are those who either have never allegedly heard the gospel or are in a culture where the gospel is not readily present or available. It's very important to understand that the definition changes from time to time and from culture to culture because what might be a heathen culture now was not a heathen culture before. So, heathen culture is defined as a culture of negative volition, those who either don't know or don't understand the gospel. Now, Pilate could have been positive at God consciousness and wanted to know more about God, and that perhaps could have changed many things, but he's not. He has completely rejected God. He has no interest in knowing about spiritual things, no concern, and he never asks any question. Sometimes we run into people like this, and you can drop all kinds of bricks. You could probably even pick up a baseball, spiritual baseball bat and hit him upside the head, and it doesn't even phase him. It's like all those Roman soldiers who are confronted with Jesus, the, the God of the universe, and when he speaks his name, just the very sound of his voice knocks them down, demonstrating that he is... The one in charge. They're not in charge. He is allowing them to arrest him. They don't have the power to arrest him. And he has just demonstrated his power over them. And yet they get up and in the blindness of their own arrogance, they just act as if nothing happened. And that says it all. Negative volition is self-deceiving. And Pilate is just another example of this. Now in verse... 35, Pilate has just dismissed the whole thing. This isn't my issue. I'm not concerned about your Jewish religious squabbles. And so Jesus then answers him in verse 36 and says, My kingdom is not of this world. And in the Greek, this is an appa plus the genitive, which means that it is not of the ultimate source of this world. It does not originate in this world. It has another source. He says, If my kingdom were of this world then my servants would be fighting. So he uses an argument here to demonstrate that he has got a different agenda. It is not a physical political agenda and that he is not uh, fighting against Rome. He is not a rebel. He is not trying to promote some sort of uh, insurrection against Rome. And this does convince Pilate. But Pilate then is caught between the horns of a dilemma and seeks another way out. Jesus simply says... If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And then in verse 37, Pilate says to him, so you, you are a king. In other words, you admit that you're a king. And then Jesus says, and he uses a Hebrew idiom here. He says, you say that I am, which is basically an affirmation. He's saying, yes, I am. He is not trying to pass the buck. He's not trying to dodge the question. He is, by the way he answers it, you say that I am, is just a Hebrew idiom for saying, yes, that's correct, I am a king. And then he says, for this I have been born. This is his purpose. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world at the Incarnation. He uses a perfect tense here to, in order to emphasize the, past, the present reality of a past action. He uses the perfect uh, active indicative of genao indicating that His birth was significant. It was the time of the virgin conception and virgin birth in which the eternal second person of the Trinity (coughs) entered into human history. By entering into human history, the eternal God was going to provide a perfect solution to mankind. Jesus Christ was born and He was undiminished deity. He did not give up any of His attributes of deity. He simply restricted their independent use. He was still omniscient. He was still omnipotent. He was still omnipresent. But he was not relying upon those divine attributes in order to solve problems in his own life. He was also true humanity, sinless humanity. Jesus Christ was born without a sin nature, Therefore, Adam's original sin was not imputed to him because of the virgin birth. He did not inherit a sin nature through, the, through his father. And so he was perfect humanity. This is what is called the hypostatic union from the Greek word hypostasis, meaning nature. It is the union of two natures that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person for all eternity. Even though Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and He has died and resurrected and is in heaven today, He is still in hypostatic union and will be in hypostatic union throughout all all eternity. Now, part of His purpose in coming to earth was not only to go to the cross and die as our substitute, but it was also to demonstrate a new spiritual life. In his life, he operated under the filling of God the Holy Spirit so that whenever he encountered problems, difficulties in life, for example, the greatest pressure, the greatest suffering that anybody, any human being ever faced was what he encountered on the, tr- on the cross. When he faces the uh, unjust and undeserved attack of uh, being arrested and put on trial and crucified, uh, uh, for something he had not done, remember Jesus Christ is sinless, He has not committed any crime, He does not deserve crucifixion, He does not deserve to be arrested. When he goes through all of this suffering, how does he handle it? He doesn't handle it by relying upon his divine attributes. He handles it by relying upon the filling of God the Holy Spirit. He does it by relying upon the same spiritual assets that He has given to us at the moment of salvation. And how was he able to do that? Because he spent 30 years preparing for his ministry and then three years in ministry. Now, notice that. Now, most churches you go to, what they want to do is the day after you're saved, they want to get you out knocking on doors, down teaching Sunday school, and you're not prepared. Notice that Jesus spent 30 years getting prepared for three years of work. most, Most churches today want you to spend about... Three seconds in preparation, if that, and the rest of your life in ministry, and that's totally backwards. People need to spend the majority of their time getting trained. You know, somebody comes to church, and the next thing they know, they want to get them involved in doing something. I remember first church I was pastoring, somebody came up to me and said, You know, Pastor, if you really want this church to grow, when you have visitors here, Uh, You need to get them involved in something, you know, teaching down in Sunday school. So they have a sense of of ownership for the church and involvement. And I said, so you want people who don't know up from down doctrinally to be teaching your kids idiotic things in Sunday school because uh, you want the church to grow. Well, that's just stupid. And that's exactly what happens in most churches and why people never learn anything in any churches. And that's why we have a policy here that before anybody ever gets involved uh, downstairs teaching in uh, uh, Sunday school, that they need to be here for about a year so that we can have a little time to find out if you know anything. And you can get some doctrine and uh, have something in your soul to teach. You have to prepare before you can get involved, you have to go through training. There has to be some spiritual growth and there have to be has to be some spiritual development. And this takes time. And too, too often people are just too impatient. They want something to happen right away. And that's not the way we do things around here. The emphasis here is on preparation. And it takes a long time to be prepared for ministry. There has to be a lot of spiritual growth before there can be any spiritual fruit. And we studied that back in John chapter 15 when we studied about the vine. That in the analogy of a vine and fruit production, we saw that there needs to be a tremendous amount of of nourishment and growth. Just as if you're out here planting a uh, tomato vine, it takes about 90 days before fruit is going to appear on the vine. In the meantime, there's a tremendous amount of work involved. You have to water it. You have to make sure there's the right kind of fertilizer in the soil and a lot of development and growth has to take place before there's ever any production and that's the same way it is in the spiritual life there needs to be a- Growth before there's ever any production production is related to spirit is a result of spiritual growth it is not the cause of spiritual growth see in most churches they're so concerned about getting you involved in prayer meetings and witnessing and giving and they make these results of spiritual growth causes of spiritual growth and giving and witnessing, and all of these other things are, the result, are, are are supposed to be aspects or results of your priesthood. They are not the cause of spiritual growth. They are the result of spiritual growth. Your cause of spiritual growth is learning the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying it. And after you've done that for a while, and there's been some preparation and some maturation, then you're going to see some fruit produced. Produce then you're going to see the results of spiritual growth, and that is what is a person's ministry. A ministry comes only after there is a lot of time spent in production. And that is what we see emphasized when Jesus says that, for this cause I have been born and I have come into the world in order to bear witness to the truth. Jesus Christ bore witness to the truth, first of all, by his miraculous birth, through a virgin conception and virgin birth, and his entrance into human history. A second way in which he bore witness to the truth was in his humanity. He developed, first of all, his spiritual life. He learned doctrine. We know from Luke 2.52 that he, he grew with respect to the knowledge of God, and he grew spiritually. He had, in his humanity, Jesus Christ had to learn doctrine. He had to learn the Word of God and apply the Word of God, and he had to grow spiritually just like any other believer. In fact, we're told in Hebrews that he learned uh, by the things he suffered. And so he had to go through testing. And as we studied in the first hour, this testing is designed for training in order to give us the opportunity to utilize the doctrine in our soul. And it is built line upon line, precept upon precept, and it d- develops incrementally, and as you grow, God brings tests into your life in order to give you the opportunity to apply that doctrine so that you can grow. And under the ministry, the filling of God the Holy Spirit, the doctrine that is in your soul that you have learned is then transformed into spiritual growth. And then as a result of that spiritual growth, there is spiritual Production and so Jesus Christ has spent 30 years growing in order to have three years of ministry. And during that time, as he is growing, he is learning what we call the ten stress busters. He only operated on nine of them because he did not need to use First John one nine. There was no sin in the life, so he was did not have to confess any sin, and he was always filled with God the Holy Spirit. Now, for just a little review, remember the first stress buster is confession because whenever we are out of fellowship, we're going to be under the control of the sin nature and that's just going to aggravate whatever problems we face. So, the first thing we have to do is to confess our sins so that we can be restored to fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is the second problem-solving device or stress buster, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is the, the Holy Spirit's teaching us The Word of God, helping us to understand it and see how it applies in our life. The third stress buster is the faith rest drill. Learning to trust God, mixing promises with faith. If you don't know the promises of God, you don't have anything to believe. And faith in faith is nothing. That's mysticism. And that's not how you grow. We grow by mixing faith with the promises and principles in God's Word. And it is on the basis of trusting God and trusting His Word, trusting His power, trusting His provisions, and, and understanding doctrine that we grow. The fourth is grace orientation. We have to orient our thinking to grace. That The whole spiritual life is based on grace just as salvation is based on grace. It's not based on who I am or what I do that I don't have to jump through certain hoops or go to church a certain amount of Uh, Time, or or read my Bible every day or do certain things in order to impress God so that He he in turn will uh, somehow bless me. We have to realize that everything we have in life, in the spiritual life, was provided at the instant of salvation and that we have to orient our thinking to grace and not legalism or works. Then, only after we are oriented to grace, then we can orient ourselves to doctrine. That means we have to completely renovate our thinking. Romans 12.2 says that we are to renew our minds. That means we have to go in and we don't just rearrange the furniture in the house. We have to uh, tear down the whole house. It's sort of like uh, some of you may have the experience of bringing in an interior decorator. And the interior decorator says, okay, well, you have some things here that we can work with, so we'll we'll just put this sofa over here and this chair here, and maybe we'll recover that chair, and we'll just uh, keep those drapes, but we'll paint the walls a different color. That's not how the Holy Spirit operates. The ho- when you call in the Holy Spirit as the, as the uh, reformer of your thinking, He's going to come in with a crane and a ball and a bulldozer, and He's going to tear down everything that you had, to salvation, All your thinking is wrong because it's based on the false assumption of human autonomy. And so you have to scrape everything down to the very foundation, lay a new foundation which is Jesus Christ, which is understanding grace, and then you rebuild the entire structure from the foundation up. And that is doctrinal orientation. We have to orient our thinking to the Word of God. And then as we do that and we begin to grow and we get past spiritual childhood, we get into spiritual adolescence and we start to to develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny. See, we have an eternal destiny that is related to our inheritance in heaven and our rewards and our future ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. And once we come to grips with the fact that life is not just what happens in the next 40 or 50 years, but that every decision we make in the next 40 or 50 or 60 years is going to determine who and what we are for all eternity, then we're beginning to realize that we are living in light of eternity. We have to realize that what we, the decisions we make today are going to significantly, significantly impact who what we do and where we are in uh, the eternal kingdom in heaven. It's not, going, not in terms of salvation, we're already saved. But in terms of our uh, position and role in the eternal kingdom, what the Bible refers to under the category of inheritance and rewards. It's just like a child. You watch children grow up and they're very self-absorbed and they're very interested in their own world and what's going on with them. And when they hit their adolescent years, of course, that's the only thing they're interested in is me, me, me. And then about the time they hit, start hitting their early 20s or mid-20s, uh, they begin to realize that uh, life is a lot longer than tomorrow. And they have to make some decisions related to what's going to happen in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and later And so they they have a long-range view of of the consequences of their decisions. And that's what happens here. You begin to realize that the decisions you're making right now are going to affect uh, eternity. They're just not a matter of what happens in time. Then seventh, eighth, and ninth is the love triplex. We start off developing personal love for God you can't love whom you don't know and because of grace orientation and doctrine orientation you've begun to learn who and what God is and develop a love for God and that becomes your major motivation Jesus says if you love me you will keep my commandments and so personal love for God then becomes the primary motivator to swing you into spiritual adulthood because what happens here is a lot of people fail right at this stage of the personal sense of eternal destiny they can't get past that and they just hang up there, and uh, usually about that time, all those initial questions you had about whatever it was that concerned you, what about the heathen, and, and how do I know if I, I'm saved, and can I do something to lose my salvation, and, and all these basic questions you had are, are, are answered. And now the motivation is going to shift from just trying to find out basics about what you believe to a relationship with God, and most people fall away at about that time, because once the intellectual curiosity is satisfied, then there's no longer a motivation to come and, uh, and learn the Word of God. All of a sudden, you've got all your questions answered, and now it's a matter of relationship, no longer a matter of knowledge. So personal love for God kicks in as your major motivation, and then you develop impersonal love for all mankind, which means that you are able to love other people whether you know them or not. That's why it's impersonal. You don't have to have a knowledge of someone, a personal relationship with someone in order to love them. And you have develop an impersonal love for all mankind so that you can love them as Christ loved you without conditions. And that then enables you to handle all sorts of problems like rejection and adversity where people are concerned without caving in to mental attitude, sins and bitterness and hatred and anger. And then occupation with Christ. Occupation with Christ means that Christ is our focus. We are keeping Him as the, as the motivation. We are focusing on Christ who is the author and finisher of our faith. And then finally, 10, we have the inner happiness that God provides for us, which is the joy that the Scripture talks about. Jesus said, my joy I give to you. And this is, apart from all circumstances, events, people in our life, we can have perfect stability and perfect happiness because we share the happiness of God. So these are the ten stress busters. Now, Jesus didn't need confession, and he wasn't occupied with Christ. He was occupied with the plan of God. And so Jesus Christ was able to deal with all the adversity that came his way, and he was the pioneer of this spiritual life and demonstrated all of this for us. Now, this whole concept of those uh, stress busters is new to you. That is fully developed in the series that I did last year on James. And you can go back and get those tapes at no charge and listen to those for a full exposition of the Stress Busters. Now, Jesus Christ has demonstrated all of this and He has prepared Himself for ministry. He has mastered the spiritual life. He pioneered it for us. And He has grown to spiritual maturity. And then He entered into His ministry and He bore witness of the truth. Now, Jesus then says, not only did he bear witness to the truth, but he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, he is saying, anyone who is positive to God hears my voice and will respond to me. Obviously, Pilate is not positive. If Pilate had been positive, he would have responded, but he just answers what is truth. Now, we know that when Pilate says, "What is truth?" He is not saying, "Okay, let's let's discuss this. What is truth? What do you mean um, that you bore witness to the truth? What do you mean, everyone who's of the truth? Tell me, what is the truth?" He's not ask, asking the question that way. It is a rhetorical question, probably dripping with sarcasm, because he doesn't stay around for an answer. He just turns around and walks out. He says, "What is truth?" He has rejected because of negative volition and God consciousness. Once you reject an absolute in the universe, the only thing that you can have is, is relativism in your soul. So he no longer believes in truth. He does not believe in any absolutes. <coughs> and so when he, when he hears Jesus say, what is truth, he rejects that and walks out. He has no curiosity, no interest Whatsoever, Pilate then is just like any other person who has rejected God at God consciousness and ends up under condemnation. And this brings up a question related to those who never heard. Now, Pilate heard. But well, what about those, you'll be asked this at some point. In fact, I was asked this several times when I was in Kazakhstan. What about those... Who've never heard. Now these people are asking from a very serious perspective because their parents, their grandparents grew up under Soviet Russia and never did hear the gospel. And so they are very concerned. And the question is, what about those who never heard? So first of all, under the doctrine of heathenism, we have to define the problem. If somebody comes up to you and they say, ask you the question, what about those who never heard? First thing you better do is clarify the question. The question is not, what about those who never heard? The question is, what about those who allegedly or apparently never heard? Because what the Scripture says is everybody has had the same opportunity and the same chance to be positive towards God. Hold your place here and turn with me over to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, why is the wrath of God revealed? The cause for it is given in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them For God made it evident to them. So what Paul is asserting is that every single human being has the same evidence before them that God exists. And that this evidence is so strong, so powerful, and so overwhelming that everyone knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists. They reach a stage of God consciousness where they are aware that God exists. He says, because that which is known about God is Evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, God has revealed Himself lucidly to every single human being. No one can say, but God, I didn't know You existed. God says right here that everybody, whether you're living in deep, dark Africa, whether you're living, living in Asia, whether you're living in Europe, whether you're living in uh, uh, Harlem or in south-central Los Angeles or in Chicago or out in the middle of Montana somewhere, every single human being knows that God exists and has clearly understood that God exists. He says, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the nonverbal witness, what theologians call the general revelation of God, is so clear that no one has an excuse. No one can claim before the Supreme Court of Heaven, God, I didn't know you existed. Now, they'll try to pull that with you, and they'll try to pull that with me when we're witnessing to them. And no matter how much you talk to them sometimes, they'll never admit that they ever knew that God existed. But when they stand before the great white throne judgment, they will not be able to use that excuse because God will make it clear to them and they will know that they did at one time know that God existed. Notice verse 21. For even though they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart, that is, their thinking of their soul, was darkened. What are they doing? They are, back at verse 18, they are suppressing. That is an active verb. That means that they are volitionally involved in suppressing the truth of God's existence in unrighteousness. Just a little note. To tell you the kind of trouble we had in explaining this when I was in Kazakhstan is that in the Russian Bible, which is horrendous, in the Russian Bible they have a tendency to always translate dikaiosune, which is the Greek for righteousness, as truth, which really screws up a tremendous number of passages. But if you, if, because of that problem, they translate that phrase, who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, that is translated as who suppressed the word in truth which is a meaningless statement. You know, you wonder why, why they can't get a grip on what the Bible says is because they don't have a clear translation of the Bible. I mean, if you've got translations like that, no wonder people are all messed up. And uh, it was very difficult uh, to try to deal with some of the questions that they had because the Bibles that they had were so poorly translated, much worse than the King James ever thought about being translated. So anyway... The definition of the problem is that it's not about those that never heard, but those that allegedly never heard, who apparently never heard. Second point, there's enough historical evidence to suggest that there has never been someone who never heard. Our problem is historical ignorance. We just don't have a lot of records, but we do have certain records, uh, certain indications that suggest that by the end of the first century, The gospel about Jesus Christ had really gone throughout the whole world. Uh, One Roman executive in northern Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now, was called Pliny the Younger. During the reign of Trajan, he wrote a number of letters back to the emperor, and in these letters he lamented the fact that in Asia Minor, he said, men of every rank are becoming Christians. Uh, Later on, uh, uh, about 100 years later, Tertullian asserted that at least... Ten percent of the people in Carthage, including senators and ladies of the noblest descent, uh, were becoming Christians. A number of other church fathers throughout that time, during the uh, beginning of the second century on, also emphasized the fact that the gospel had gone out throughout the entire world. We know that some of the disciples went to India. Thomas went to India, for example, uh, and carried the gospel there. We know that in the 4th and 5th century A.D., the Nestorian Christians went to China and tens of thousands were saved there. And there's all kinds of other evidence from Africa and other places that we know that missionaries went to many different places all over the world. So the problem is not that all these people never had a a witness. It's that we just don't necessarily have historical evidences of a lot of the activity that did go on. Third point. Biblical evidence, for example, Acts 17.6, Colossians 1, 1.6, and 1 Timothy 3.16 emphasized that the entire world, even during the apostolic period, was being evangelized. That the gospel was going throughout the entire world. Not only through apostles that were going to Africa, that were going up into uh, Europe and Asia Minor, but their uh, converts. For example, you had uh, Philip who appeared to the Ethiopian eunuch and converted him. Then that Ethiopian went on to Ethiopia and there led hundreds to the Lord. So you have second and third, fourth generation type of Christians that are developing and we just don't have the historical evidence. But the Bible clearly asserts that the gospel was going throughout the whole world even during the apostolic period. Fourth point, we have to understand the essence of God. God is absolute righteousness and justice, which means that God's dealings with mankind are always based on absolute fairness. He is sovereign. That means God is in control of human history and He can take the gospel wherever He wants the gospel to go. He is righteous, which means He is absolutely fair and just in his dealings with mankind, and so that if anyone expresses positive volition at God consciousness, God is going to make sure they get the gospel. God is love. This means that God not only sent his son to die for the sins of the whole world, but God is going to make sure that that the gospel gets to those who are positive, because that is his his goal, is to save as many as possible. God is eternal, which means that for all eternity He is known about every circumstance, every situation in human history, and can make provision for it. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, which means in his omnipotence he is able to get people uh, get the gospel wherever it needs to go. There is no place on the earth that is too far, too distant, too remote for God to get the gospel there. He is omniscient, which means he knows every thought, every desire on man's part. And so no one can be positive at God consciousness and uh, escape God's notice. And he is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. So he sees all and knows all, and he can get the gospel everywhere. He is immutable. He never changes. He's always faithful to himself and his own character, and he is absolute truth. So on the basis of God's character, he will not let anyone perish who had the least amount of positive volition. Fifth point, when we talk about what about the heathen, we need to realize that in that definition, heathens are those who don't know the gospel or who have rejected God at God consciousness. Everybody at one time or another has been a heathen. At one time in history, the Scots were heathen and the Irish sent them missionaries. At another time, the Irish were heathen and the Brits sent them missionaries. That was Patrick. And another time, the Germans were heathen, and the Romans sent them missionaries. Then there was a time when the Europeans were heathen, and the Africans from North Africa, like under the ministry of Augustine, sent missionaries to Europe. Later, Europeans were believers and sent missionaries to Africa. Now, all of those people in Europe are heathen, and Americans are sending missionaries there. And Americans are becoming more heathen, and Africans and Europeans are beginning to send missionaries here. So from generation to generation, heathenism and the location of heathenism changes depending on positive volition, which shifts from generation to generation. The doctrine of unlimited atonement means that Christ died for the sin of every human being on earth and that it is God's desire to save everyone who will respond positively to the gospel. So God in his omniscience knows who is positive in God consciousness and who will respond positively to the gospel and he makes sure that they get the information necessary in order to be saved. Now, it is not that God saves them simply on the basis of positive volition. Remember, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, God gets the gospel to everyone that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins so that they have something to respond to. God's intention is to save as many as possible. Now, this is the point of of heathenism. Now, Pilate was negative in God consciousness, and even when he had the King of kings and Lord of lords in his presence, he was unconcerned and uninterested and just dismissed him with the sarcastic question, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. See, he had enough objectivity to realize that Jesus Christ was innocent but he did not understand who he was in his person. And so he tried then the path of expediency and an alternate solution, hoping that this would get him off the hook, and he offered to them a criminal in place of the innocent Jesus, and the Jews turned the table on him and chose Barabbas instead of Christ. We'll come back next time and continue our study in chapter 19 as the result of this as we get into the intensified stage of this trial as Jesus begins to go through the physical suffering leading up to the cross with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word uh, this morning, for the opportunity to understand the dynamics of our salvation. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All you have to do is trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise your hand, join a church. You don't need to promise God to change your life. All you have to do is accept the free gift that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's a simple act of faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Father, we pray that you will help us to understand the the tremendous dynamics of our salvation and all of its depth and all of its uh, complexity because this provided everything for us throughout our lives and our spiritual life. And we pray that we might be challenged by this, that we might press on to spiritual maturity to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.